Welcome to Christ and Culture, the podcast of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Here we'll explore how the Christian faith intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading thinkers. Welcome to the conversation. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Christ and Culture podcast. I'm Dr. Ken Keithley, and today we're joined by Dr. Malcolm Yarnell, Research Professor of Theology at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary and an external fellow for the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture here at Southeastern. Dr. Yarnell has written extensively on systematic, biblical, and historical theology, and he currently serves as a teaching pastor at Lakeside Baptist Church in Granbury, Texas. Dr. Yarnell served as our guest speaker for this year's Drummond Bush Lecture, in which he discussed his article, Christology in Chalcedon, Creed and Contextualization, Deriving Lessons from the Council of Chalcedon for Contemporary Christianity. We're going to dive deeper into Dr. Yarnell's findings during our conversation today. Thank you for being here with us, Dr. Yarnell. Thank you for having me, Dr. Keithley. I, uh, we enjoyed hearing your lecture in which you presented the Drummond Bush lecture. Uh, and the title of the lecture was Christology Without Christlikeness, which um, was fascinating uh, on so many levels. I enjoyed it. And thank you for coming uh, to our podcast to be with us to talk about it some more. Um, this debate that happened between Cyril and Nestorius that uh, culminated in the Council of Chalcedon. Um, it, was a, it was a fairly volatile time. I mean, mm. we're talking the late Roman Empire. Um, what, what, what was the context? What was it like during this, this period of time? Yeah, well, I think what we have to remember is that they were operating in a context that is both similar and different uh, from our own. It was similar in that you had a, an overarching uh, sense of governance over a major portion of the uh, inhabited or known inhabited earth at that time, uh, the Roman Empire. And it was composed of various nations uh, that were existing together under one law. Uh, and these, the, these nations are trying to uh, both, you know, make, keep a, a place for themselves as well as to advance what they believe is the, the good and the true and the beautiful. Now, many of these have large populations by this point of Christians, or at least Christians in name. And so you have both Christians and then you have, as we do in our day, uh, those who would identify themselves as Christians and yet themselves were probably only nominally Christian. They were what we might call culturally uh, Christian. And yet the people that appear in power, including in the state and in the church, consider themselves to be uh, very committed Christians who are trying to serve their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The difficulty is, is that they see things often from a different perspective. And just as today, when we have 
theological arguments. I think they were looking over one another's shoulder and saying, ah, I see an error occurring here behind you, and you're not paying attention to that. And that's the error that we need to, to be aware of. Uh, but then the other person saw it in a different way. So you were talking about a period of time in which, um, well, let's, let's talk about Constantine. You, you know, we're talking about the Roman Empire in the fourth century. So who was Constantine? What impact did he have on the church? That's a great question. So Constantine was uh, actually um, uh, the son of Constantius, who was the Western emperor. Um, and so his father uh, was the Western emperor. And after Constantius's death, uh, Constantine uh, took his place. And uh, he was originally uh, based in the area we know as York, which you and I have visited, by the way. I do remember uh, visiting the York Cathedral with a great slab stone in which Constantine was crowned emperor by his soldiers. Yeah, and, and that, that, that stone, that statue there is absolutely uh, amazing because it represents the, the gigantic nature of the man himself. So he was a leader. His mother was a Christian. And whenever uh, he uh, began to move towards Rome in order to claim the empire, he had to overcome various forces. Uh, but he found that he himself uh, was able to gain power, and he believes he had a vision of the Lord. And uh, so under this sign, conquer. Um, and so he takes and he begins to emphasize uh, what many believe to be Christianity. And so he uh, eventually is able uh, to take over Rome and then uh, over the whole empire. And while he is doing this, he is able to take and to free Christians from the persecution that they had once been suffering under Decius and Diocletian and Galerius, horrible persecutions. He actually gives them liberty, but he even does more than that he also grants them privilege. And so you have under Constantine both a liberty that is given to Christians that they did not possess before. They no longer have to watch as their clergy are put to death. They no longer have to watch as Christians who refuse to sacrifice to the genius of the emperor are put to death. Uh, they actually have freedom. But more than that, they actually also uh, start to have benefits uh, that used to belong to the pagan. Uh, uh, religious leaders. And so uh, Constantine was able in the early fourth century uh, to create a context in which Christianity is favored as a religion. As a result, you have all sorts of people begin to flood into the church. Some we would consider probably true Christians. Others we would consider to be, you know, cargo Christians or cultural Christians that are there for the benefits of belonging to the religion we know is Christianity. That's Constantine. Yeah, I, I think I, I read somewhere that at the time of Constantine's conversion, about 10% of the Roman Empire identified as Christian. And by the end of that century, it was 50%. Uh, and we wish that it was a, an enormous revival, but... Um, well, I think it was Rodney Stark who yes, said Rodney that Stark. Constantine made it so easy to become a Christian that it rarely actually 
ever happened, uh, you know. And so, so um, which then brings up uh, a term that you use, Constantinianism. What is the Constantine synthesis then? What what you you, you kind of hinted at this. Um, now, instead of being the persecuted sect, they become the privileged religion. And yes. what impact does that have not only on the Roman Empire but on on, on Europe for? Uh, you know, more than a millennia. Yeah, well, it, it still impacts our culture today. That's how powerful the Constantinian uh, movement was. So it's that Constantinianism is that form of Christianity which takes and combines the church with state power structures. And it proposes to advance the interests of the church often with the coercive tools of the state. And so the church becomes a beneficiary, for instance, of the state's uh, tax collection. It becomes a beneficiary of the state's protection. And its authority to pursue this program, so Constantinianism, um, its authority to pursue this program and the practical results of it uh, was heavily disputed by pagans in the period. Um, and since then, uh, there have been Christian traditions that have arisen, uh, especially those affiliated with the free churches, including Baptists and Churches of Christ, Mennonites, those that have not been uh, a state church. Uh, they have objected to Constantinianism as a system uh, because it actually displaces the way that God uh, revealed the way that Christ revealed he wanted his church to be governed and put uh, state authority in the place of Christ himself. And that, and, and so Constantinianism uh, set the dates for calendars, uh, for the, uh, for instance, the, uh, the almost universal um, Western uh, celebration of the Sabbath um, and of uh, Sunday as a day of privilege and rest. Uh, these are a result, I think, are good results. Uh, there are good results and there are bad results of the whole Constantinian movement. Yeah, so you have this wedding of church and state that, as you say, privileges uh, Christianity. And, and, and let's face it, uh, the church then takes advantages of many of those, advantage, uh, of those, of those privileges. Um, however, there is a price to pay, uh, and uh, there is a corrupting influence, I think, that can be safely said. Um, so during this period of time, we have the Arian controversy, which becomes settled. Uh, then we have the Apollinarian controversy. So there, there is this agreement uh, that uh, among Christians, by the time we come to the time of, of Cyril and, and Nestorius, that Jesus is both human and divine. There seems to be that affirmation. Um, it, so they, they affirm his true genuine deity and they affirm his true genuine humanity, but how those two uh, are to be understood to be related, those two natures are to be related to one another, that's where it gets sticky. That's where we have a lot of, of, of controversy. So what is the controversy then that culminates then in the, in, in, in the council at, at Chalcedon in 451? Who are the players? Tell us about Cyril. 
uh, and about Nestorius. And then I'm going to read something to you, uh, you know, after you talk to us about that. Yeah, well, let's remember that the reason that they were holding these uh, councils was because the state, the emperor of Rome, uh, was calling them together. Most of these councils, by the way, are dominated uh, by the interests of Eastern Christians. Rome and the Latin West uh, is a player, but it's a more minor player in the midst of these councils. Uh, if, I could, if, I can, if I could just, you know, one of the things that I think that might be helpful here is to remember that Constantine actually moved the capital of the Roman Empire at this time out of Rome into what is today Istanbul, but Constantinople. Absolutely. And he was also responsible for the meeting of that first and really important ecumenical council uh, of Nicaea, in which the uh, faith was defined over against Arianism. Arianism uh, took and actually uh, diminished Christ in who he is in his deity. And it was actually a close run thing because for a time there, it looked like Constantine might switch his position uh, towards an Arian position. And so um, what the Christians of that period figured out was that whoever had the ear of the emperor uh, was going to be able to have his way uh, doctrinally. And because th these doctrines about who Jesus is are so important to our faith, uh, being uh, in good graces with the state became a, uh, a, a religious theological necessity. And so what happened in order to lead up to the Council of Chalcedon, after the uh, Council of Nicaea in 325, you have two other major councils, uh, at one at Constantinople in 381, uh, which further clarified the doctrine of God as Father and Son and Holy Spirit, the Trinity. Then the Council of Ephesus occurred as an argument over who is Jesus. So that's the question, who is Jesus? And there were arguments between uh, Cyril, who was the leading uh, bishop over Alexandria, and uh, Nestorius, who was the leading bishop over Constantinople, two major power centers. It's like, it would have been like having London and New York going at one another. And uh, Nestorius was leery about uh, affirming uh, that, uh, that Mary, that the, the mother of Jesus, was the Theotokos, the God-bearer. And it's because he was concerned that that would lead to some type of superstition. Whereas Cyril, who was a clearer uh, thinker on the theological level, who's the Bishop of Alexandria, was arguing that, listen, Jesus Christ is one person. So the emphasis in Cyril's writings are, is on the unity of Christ. He is God who came and was born as a human being by Mary under, of course, uh, the conception of the Holy Spirit. And so uh, Nestorius was taken and condemned at uh, the Council of Ephesus in 431, and uh, the, it seemed that the Alexandrian theology, which emphasized the unity of the person of Christ, was going to win the day. Uh, and yet they continued to argue. Well, by the time you get to a second council of Ephesus, uh, you begin to actually have violence that is occurring as Christians are trying to dominate one another. And using the power of the state, it became quite a mess. So that by 451, 
the uh, empire is in an uproar. Alexandria can withhold grain from Constantinople, which of course, you know, if your population is going hungry, uh, you're going to lose power. So the emperor has a uh, stake in trying to bring about peace. And of course, he is a believer as well. And so uh, the emperor at that point calls together a council and tries to get all of these warring theologians to get together and to come up with a statement that they all could affirm. And that's the Council of Chalcedon. You mentioned, uh, we, we've mentioned now Nestorius and uh, Cyril, and we've, you've, you've talked about them becoming violent. Cyril is one of those uh, characters, as you mentioned, who theologically uh, was able to think very clearly, but he was also very much a political animal. Uh, and there are, uh, if you've ever watched uh, the television series Cosmos, first with um, uh, Carl Sagan, and then now it's got some later uh, additions. One of the persons that they show uh, to demonstrate the, the ongoing conflict between Christianity and science is that they talk about the martyrdom of Hypatia, who they accuse uh, Cyril of murdering. And when that is not, uh, first off, it's not accurate, but it, there's nothing new about that. In fact, um, uh, Deus John Tolan wrote a book uh, about Hypatia, and here this is back in the in, I think the 1600s, maybe the 1700s, whenever he wrote this. Uh, here's the title of the book: Hypatia, or the history of a most be beautiful, most virtuous, most learned, and in every way accomplished lady, who was torn to pieces by the clergy of Alexandria to gratify the pride, emulation, and cruelty of the Archbishop commonly but undeservedly titled Saint Cyril. Yeah, the book was in 1720. Um, then Edward Gibbon, of course, famous for writing The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. Here's how he tells the story. Hypatia was torn from her chariot, stripped naked, dragged to the church, and inhumanly, inhumanly butchered by the hands of Peter the Reader and a troop of savage and merciless fanatics. Her flesh was scraped from her bones with sharp oyster shells. Her quivering limbs were delivered to the flames. So at first, uh, you have some who tried to accuse Cyril of actually orchestrating it. Turns out that that's not the case. But I think he was guilty of, of using overwrought and inflammatory language. And without a doubt, she did find herself caught in a political crossfire between Cyril, who was Archbishop, and Orestes, who was the ruler, the Roman ruler of Alexandria at that time. Uh, and so it highlights uh, just how volatile the situation was in that day. And it also uh, highlights just how enmeshed Christian bishops were now in Roman politics. Absolutely. and how things could go south in a hurry. Yeah. Um, and, and let's remember a couple of things here. Uh, first of all, the, uh, the mythology that has been created by scholars like Gibbon and is continued uh, by scholars like Charles Freeman today, uh, mm -hmm. those, those are, uh, in some ways, those are uh, perverted histories. Uh, they try to present it from one perspective, that's not objective history. 
objective history gives you all the facts and it, and it lets the uh, car, cards uh, fall where they may. I think what has happened is that we forget that generally that society was violent and that violence was a common recourse for pagan, Jew, Christian alike, and sadly so. And uh, the purpose of my lecture, of course, was to try to call us out and say that we're better than that. And so uh, it raises the question, of course, you know, Cyril, I think, is one of the most brilliant theologians who have ever written on behalf of the Church of Jesus Christ. Uh, so what do we do with uh, someone whose uh, language has incited or perhaps not uh, uh, taken and reduced violence? Uh, what do we do? Do we reject everything uh, about him? I don't think that's the case. I mean, you know, every, every hero we have in the faith is going to have flaws, except for one, and his name is Jesus Christ. And so uh, we just have to take uh, everything and filter it through the truth of God's word. And that includes some of the greatest uh, figures in Christian history. I mean, we could talk about Martin Luther, for instance. Uh, we could talk about many others. And so, yes, uh, you know, no Christian theologian is going to be perfect, but that doesn't mean that they don't have something we need to hear them say. Speaking of hearing what they have to say, um, it is remarkable that God providentially worked in such a volatile and violent time to produce what I think is a magnificent document. So what does the Council of of Chalcedon, or Chalcedon, uh, what do they arrive at? In, in a nutshell, how do they understand the person of Jesus Christ? Oh, that's such a great question. And you know, uh, the fact is, is that they did put together a statement at Chalcedon that was put together by a broadly representative committee of uh, bishops that were trying to seek peace that would include all Christians, if at all possible, in affirming who Jesus Christ is. And I think that statement, you can come down to basically uh, three major claims uh, by the formula of Chalcedon. Uh, first of all, there is the unity of the person of Jesus Christ. So over against Nestorianism, uh, it is going to affirm that Christ is one. We worship one. And the language, of course, is used of one person, or one really uh, hypostasis. And so the, the language there is clear that Christ is himself not to be divided. That's one thing that Chalcedon teaches. The second thing that Chalcedon teaches is that you cannot lose either the deity or the humanity of Christ. When the word of God in the language of the Apostle John became flesh. What you have here is a, is a miracle that we cannot repeat, and it is a miracle that only God can do in that the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, became a human being. His name is Jesus, and he is the Messiah, the Christ, the King that Israel and that the world has been waiting for in order to redeem it and rule it properly. And so the emphasis here ought to be that God himself in the second person of the Trinity became a human being. This one person whose name is Jesus Christ is fully God and fully human. 
And so the two natures in this second claim are emphasized. And that's why it's also known as duophysitism, two natures, deity, humanity, and no confusion between the natures, no division between the natures, uh, no conflation, uh, no separation. You have two natures, one person, and that's a mystery. Our minds really are incapable of containing both of those truths at the same time. And so I often have to teach my students, you have to affirm the humanity, you have to affirm the deity, and you have to constantly go back and forth between the two natures, holding them together as one person. Because our mind wants to make him either God or man. But scripture tells us, and our hearts tell us through the conviction of the Holy Spirit, that this is one man. Now, that's two of the claims of the Council of Chalcedon that need to be held. There's a third claim that actually helps hold all of this together. And that is that we must speak of the double generation of Jesus Christ. He is eternally generated in his deity from the Father. He is the eternal Son of God, the only begotten Son of God of the eternal Father. So all that, that Christ is, the Son of God is, he has gotten from the Father eternally, and he always is one with the Father by generation, by being begotten. That's one generation. The other generation is that he was conceived of the humanity of Mary. And so he is uh, conceived, of course, by the work of the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary. So we must refer to him in this double generation, eternally generated son of the father, which means that all that the father is, is all that the son is. There is no distinction in the deity of the father and the son but also he is fully human. He wasn't a, a, a ghost who became a human being for a time. No, no, he became, and that's why John's language in the gospel is so important. He became flesh. He became a human being. He is now always human. We have a human being sitting on the throne of the universe, Dr. Keithley, and his name is Jesus Christ. And so that double generation helps us to hold together in our minds the truthfulness of who Jesus Christ is. One person, two natures, a twofold generation. Thank you for uh, explaining it so very clearly. Uh, very well said. Um, and, and it is a beautiful uh, confession. Uh, I, I, I have my students, we go through it word for word uh, in our theology class also. Um, a beautiful statement that I think is very clear, but as you make clear in your talk, which incidentally is available for to, to hear the entire lecture on, on our website, the Intersect website, one of the things that um, you make clear in your talk is that it doesn't produce the unity within the church that we would have hoped, that there still is a division. What happens? What, what, what went wrong? What, why, why wasn't there more success on that front? Yeah. Well, what happened then is what often happens today. Uh, you had Christians who were passionate and wanted to define things slightly differently. And by the way, most of the Christians uh, that were at the Council of Chalcedon that disagreed with one another 
we've, did, we've learned through time that, for instance, the, uh, the church of the Coptic, the, the church of Egypt, which is Miaphysite, uh, that worships Christ in one nature, uh, they do not compromise either the deity or the humanity of Christ, but they did not like the language of two natures. They went about affirming his two natures in a different way. Well, uh, when you have such a statement that really makes sense to me, I mean, I, I believe the, the, the statement of uh, the formula of Chalcedon is a true theological and a very helpful theological statement that, like you, I use in the classroom and encourage my students to use and to help them as they preach who Jesus Christ is. Uh, but uh, you had people on both sides trying to use the power of the state in order to enforce their way. And it's because the state and the church in many ways had become coterminous by this point. And they, I think, had forgotten some of the basic teachings of Jesus Christ in their concern to uphold the identity of Jesus Christ. I think they forgot some of the ethical teachings of Jesus Christ. And that's why I entitled this Christology Without Christlikeness. And by the way, I am not excusing any of those believers because they all had hands from what we can see from the, uh, from the records of the period they all did things they shouldn't do. And, you know, whether they were uh, in Alexandria or Antioch or Constantinople or any, or Rome or any of the other uh, cities, uh, you seem to have that they're operating in their cultural context that you can use the power of the state in order to have your way with regard to theological definition. And this was just, in my opinion, uh, a great tragedy. But Dr. Keithley, before we point fingers at them, we've got to see who we are. And often uh, we have used the state uh, in modern periods in order to try to have our way. Uh, the Roman Catholics did it, the magisterial reformers did it, and you even have examples of uh, free churches uh, that have often uh, tried to bring about the kingdom of God uh, in inappropriate ways. And that's because we aren't respecting one another uh, with regard to each person having a God-given conscience, and every person must have the liberty to follow God as their conscience leads them. Uh, sadly, uh, religious liberty is an issue that I believe Christ was teaching us, but that we haven't always uh, fulfilled perfectly. We've been listening uh, and talking with uh, Dr. Malcolm Yarnell, a research professor at Southwestern Seminary. Uh, his talk uh, was uh, Christology Without Christlikeness. If you wish to hear the entire lecture, you can hear it uh, at our website, uh, intersectproject.org. Uh, and also, uh, a, an expanded version can be found at uh, our online journal, Southeastern Theological Review. Uh, that's also at, uh, at sebts.edu. And what we've learned from talking to Dr. Yarnell is that um, there's truly only one hero, and that is uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, and that God is able to do some remarkable providential things through some uh, very imperfect people. So, uh, and, and, we're glad, and we're glad for that. Dr. Yarnell, thank you so much uh, for being with us. Uh, we appreciate it so much. Thank you. I really enjoyed the time with you, and Dr. Keithley, you are just one of my favorite, not just theologians, but one of my favorite human beings. I pray the Lord will bless you in your ministry 
you are doing such great work there uh, with the center and, uh, and Southeastern Seminary is just a wonderful school in my opinion. And, uh, and so thank you for the opportunity to serve with you uh, in this regard. We're always delighted to have you. You're a dear friend. God bless you. You too.